Amen. Let us turn to our confessional reading this evening. Page 226, as we uh, move from the summary of the Apostles' Creed into the section on the sacraments. Lord's Day 25, question answers 65 to 68, and I'll read the questions. Let us together say the answers. Page 226, Lord's Day 25, beginning with question 65. It is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all his benefits. Where then does that faith come from? The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacraments. What are sacraments? Sacraments are visible, holy signs and seals that were instituted by God so that by our use of them he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and seal that promise. And this is God's gospel promise. He grants us forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace because of Christ's one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. Are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and confirms by the holy sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. How many sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? Two, holy baptism and the holy supper. That is the confession we hold in common. Let us turn to the very word of God, Romans chapter 2. And for those who were here last Sunday evening, we looked especially at verses 17 to 24, and that address continues. The apostle speaks to his fellow countrymen, to his fellow Jews, especially to those who are rejecting the Messiah, and he is appealing to them. He's speaking to those who call themselves a Jew. Looking back at verse 17. So, continuing that address to the Jews in Rome, we pick up at verse 25 of Romans chapter 2, and we'll read through verse 4, and then we'll uh, read also chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. So, Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, 
will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevailed when you are judged. And then reading also chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And so far the reading of the holy word of God. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul was circumcised on the eighth day of his life, as was Jesus, as were all of the disciples who walked with Jesus, and as were many of those to whom the Apostle Paul is now appealing in this portion of his letter to the Romans. And they received this sign legitimately, in other words, they were circumcised on the eighth day of their life before the death of Christ, before the veil of the temple was torn in two. They were circumcised when circumcision was the legitimate sign for all of God's people, either for those coming into the community as adults or for those born into the nation of Israel and God's people. Now, brothers and sisters, this means that the context here in Romans 2 and into Romans 3 is different than, say, for example, the context and the main question in the letter to the Hebrews. In the letter to the Hebrews, there's a different kind of problem going on. In the letter to the Hebrews, there's a temptation to celebrate the old signs and the old ways as a New Testament church. And so Hebrews is focused on, no, no, don't do these obsolete things. We have the high priest. Don't go back to the Levitical order of things. And so that influences the language of how Hebrews is written. You are a New Testament church. Do not go back to the old things. Romans has a different emphasis. Romans chapter 2 and 3 is addressing people who legitimately received the Old Testament signs. 
who were rightly circumcised on the eighth day. And so, brothers and sisters, this is a healthy springboard as the Apostle speaks to the Jews in Rome who were legitimately circumcised and tells them how to think about the sign they were given, this is a healthy springboard for us to now think about the New Testament signs and to think about how we should view them. What is their value? What do they do? What do they not do? Even especially, it applies to baptism. What does your baptism mean? What does your baptism not mean? And our theme as we consider this is to know that God is faithful in the giving of his valuable signs. First point, the sign must be received by faith, verses 25 to 29 of chapter 2. Our second point, the sign with the word is valuable, chapter 3, 1 and 2. And then our third point, God cannot be blamed when the sign is rejected. Chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And brothers and sisters, I've already hinted at this, but from the start, I want us to to see the application. From the start, I want us to see that even though circumcision is the language here, this is a direct springboard to how we should think about New Testament signs, especially about baptism, because circumcision was the sign of entrance into the covenant community, including for infants circumcised on the eighth day. And baptism is the sign of entrance into God's New Testament covenant community, including for infants baptized from not specifically the eighth day anymore, but from early days in their life. And so again, this has direct application to us. Although we might say, why then does the apostle not use the language of baptism? Why does he talk about circumcision? Well, there's two reasons for this, brothers and sisters. Number one, because the apostle Paul is appealing to Jews who are rejecting the Messiah. Jews who were legitimately circumcised on the eighth day of their life before the death of Jesus Christ but who are rejecting the Messiah. And once again, we might say, well, hold on, wait a second. Again, how does this apply to me? Because because we don't know anybody like that. The last person who was legitimately circumcised probably died not too long after 100 AD. That was a long time ago. How does this apply to me? And again, it comes back to, this is how we should think about the signs in general, including baptism. And again, we say, why doesn't he use the language of baptism? Number one, he's speaking to Jews. Number two, we don't know exactly when the New Testament church in Rome started, but probably there are not any adults in Rome, or very few, very few adults in Rome who were baptized, who are now even of an adult age. Rome, the letter to Romans was only written about 27 years after the death of Jesus Christ. And we have to give some time for the New Testament church to start. And that may have been not too long after, but it, 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 may, be, it may be that 
It was it was very soon before this letter. The Apostle Paul, in other words, cannot use the language of baptism here. It would not make sense. There are not members in the Church of Rome who were baptized as infants who have had time to grow to adulthood. So that's why we have the language of circumcision. But it does apply to how we should think, brothers and sisters, about baptism. Circumcision legitimately received, baptism legitimately received, this text tells us how to think about these signs. And so, having laid the groundwork for how this applies and why the apostle uses the language that he uses, let us hear the clear warning. The sign itself does not save. In this sense, the sign is conditional. See the word if repeated twice in verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. The obedience the apostle speaks of here is not perfect obedience. That's abundantly clear. If we continue reading on in chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Rather, this is what uh, question and answer 114 calls the small beginnings of obedience that we will have in this life. It's talking about the obedience, of the visible fruits of the Christian life. That small beginning of obedience for the believer. This is Paul's way of saying with James that faith without works is dead. We need to see some visible signs of being God's servant. If we do not see this, if there is no true faith accompanied by the works that follow from it, then your circumcision is uncircumcision, then your baptism is unbaptism. The sign itself does not save. So the apostle continues, jumping to verse 28. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. The implied application for any second generation Christians who will grow up in the Roman church. And again, there may not be any second generation Christians who were baptized in the Roman church yet. The implied implication for them and for us we can put it in New Testament language. Verse 28 in New Testament language no one is a Christian who is merely one through the outward sign of baptism. What is needed, brothers and sisters? There must be repentance and faith. There must be faith. See this also all throughout the catechism. In Lord's Day 25, it's in the questions, not the answers. Especially look at question 65. It is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all his benefits. Now we'll... Now we'll, now we'll ask some questions that flow from that. Or question 67, answered with, yes, indeed, are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. What is needed? 
since the sign itself doesn't save us. Since circumcision, legitimate circumcision, never saved any Jew. Since baptism, legitimate baptism, never saved any church member. In itself, what is needed? Repentance and faith. That is what we need. We need repentance and faith. True circumcision then, looking at verse 29, is rightly called a matter of the heart. And here the apostle reminds the Jews of Old Testament language they should have already known because this is the language found in texts of in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Jeremiah. This language where circumcision must be a matter of the heart. And it's in the New Testament scriptures also speaking to New Testament believers just a few years after the letter to Romans was written and one verse before using the language of Baptism, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2.11, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. A true Christian will be made new. A true Christian will repent and there will be a cutting off of sins. That's what the sign of circumcision emphasizes. There will be a washing away of sins, which is what baptism emphasizes. A true Christian will receive baptism by faith as a matter of the heart. Now, these words of the apostle might lead to an objection. And that takes us to our second point. The sign with the word is valuable, 3, 1, and 2, because the apostle has spoken so plainly about the fact that the sign itself does not save, even saying in verse 26 and 27, it's possible to not have circumcision outwardly at all and yet to be truly circumcised, even as certainly as possible to be circumcised outwardly, but not to have it as a matter of the heart. If then... If then a person doesn't even really, really need to be circumcised, and if circumcision itself doesn't really save, it all leads to this objection. Why have circumcision at all? Or as it is stated in verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? And the question can very simply be rephrased in New Testament language for any second generation New Testament believers then what advantage has the church member? Or what is the value of baptism? And the answer is this, much in every way. Just because the sign itself does not save does not mean the sign is not valuable. These are God's signs. These are God's signs. The Apostle speaks then not only about the signs, but also about the word, which must come with the signs. This is how all of God's signs, Old Testament, New Testament, they were always meant to be. The sign goes with the word. This plainly comes through in Lord's Day 25, especially in question and answers 65 and 66. The sign must be accompanied with the word. It must come with the promise of the gospel because the sign by itself doesn't save. And so the apostle uh, emphasizes the word 
also reminding the Jews of the truths of God that they have heard, of the true word that they have heard. To begin with, verse 3, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, oracles here, it's, it's just another way of speaking about all of the Old Testament. But using that word does emphasize that when the word was first given, think, for example, of the prophets, it was spoken, and then it was written. Ezekiel was spoken. It was a spoken oracle, and then it was the written word. So by using the word oracle, I didn't say why is, why is the word oracle used? By using the word oracle, the apostle is reminding them that not only do they have the Old Testament scriptures, but the Jews were the very target audience. And there is a blessing in that. Would it be a blessing if we had lived a long time ago and we were one of the churches that received a direct letter from the Holy Spirit in the opening chapters of Revelation? That would be a blessing to receive a direct target audience word. He's saying, you are given the very oracles. You, you, you are entrusted with the word. You have the whole Old Testament revelation. And as the Jewish people from one generation to another, you were often the direct target audience of the spoken oracle of the prophets before it was written down. Is this not valuable to hear the word of God? Yes, it is valuable to hear the word of God. Rejoice to hear the word of God. And may we never turn that around and say, well, because I'm not the original target audience, it can't speak to me. I read the Old Testament, and I don't know what the east wind is. I don't know where Bashan is, and I don't know why the cows of Bashan are so fat. And so what does this say to me? No. There is a value in being the first target audience, but the Word of God is the very Word of God. And it is always sharper than any two-edged sword. And even if we don't know what the east wind is, and even if we don't know why the cows of Bashan are so fat, at least not without doing a little bit of digging, the word of God is always the word of God. And the gospel is always there for each and every one of us. And so I say to you, you have been baptized. You have heard the word. You have heard the gospel. Again and again, I hope. Is that not of value? Is it not of value that you have had the privilege of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ? and his divine word opened, and you have received the signs, the signs of God for his people. Is that not of value? So then there's another objection. The sign itself does not save, but the sign is valuable. Well, if the sign is valuable, and if it's a sign of the faithfulness of God, then if somebody rejects it, does that mean God 
is unfaithful? By no means. This is our third point. That next follow-up objection, verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. It's as strong as the Apostle Paul can say it. Hard to carry through in an English translation. Perhaps the NSB is the best attempt. May it never be. So now we say it's a valuable sign. It's a sign of God's faithfulness, but some reject it. Does that mean God is unfaithful? May it never be. May we never speak such a word. You can almost hear the anxiety of the apostle that he even has to address this question. But the question does have to be addressed. And sadly, we know why. Sadly, who has not heard a version of this objection in New Testament terms? How can God give a sign of his faithfulness to little ones, even to infants who might reject it later in life? Or in personal language, for one who's wandering. Why did I receive a sign when I didn't even have a say in it? Why would God put his mark upon me when I was unaware of what was going on? Let God be true, though every man is a liar. when we would reject the signs of God and the gospel of God that comes with his word, let us never say that God is unfaithful. God is faithful. Man is unfaithful. And so in speaking about the faithfulness of God, in contrast to the faithlessness of man, the Apostle quotes from Psalm of David, from Psalm 51. And as is often the case, in the New Testament quotes from the Old, it's not just that verse that's helpful to understand what's being addressed, but also the surrounding verses. So please, brothers and sisters, turn with me to Psalm 51. The quotation is from verse 4, and it's even, it's even directly from the Greek, and so it's almost a little hard to see how it's a quotation when we're looking at the ESV, which is translated from the Hebrew. Actually, I, I very much appreciate, brothers and sisters, the paraphrase in Psalm 51c, which we will uh, sing shortly. The quotation is from verse 4, but let's see that verse 5 also addresses this general question, the whole whole question of of what is circumcision. So before we read verse 5, let's think about this. What if someone says to David, well, David, you are a Jew. You were circumcised on the eighth day. Doesn't that make you special from birth? What does David say? 
Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And then what if someone says, Well, David, you are you're a religious reformer of the nation of Israel. Who has celebrated the sacrifices as you have done? Aren't the sacrifices and the ceremonies, aren't those what save us? Now look down towards the bottom of the psalm. Psalm 51, beginning at verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good in Zion, in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. How are the signs of God to be celebrated? With a broken and contrite spirit with repentance and faith. And then, then, baptism and the Lord's Supper, the two, we only have two now. Then, they are pleasing and a true benefit. Am I good because I am a child of the covenant? Am I saved because of my participation in covenant signs? Am I in any way saved because of my own obedience? No, no, no. We are sinners. God is faithful. So, brothers and sisters, let's come toward our conclusion, going back to our text and looking back at at a verse we jumped over at the end of verse 29 because there is a play on the name and the meaning of the name of God's people at the end of verse 29. Remember, this is all written to you call yourself a Jew, verse 17. And the apostle uses the language of Jew, Jew, Jew a number of times in these verses. Well, what is Jew? What is that word? It's it's just, instead of being called Israelites, the people of God came to be identified with the tribe of Judah in particular, and Jew is just derived from the name Judah. Jew, Judah. And so all of the Israelites who are still calling themselves God's people, who, now that the Messiah has come, must trust in the Messiah, they all call themselves Judas. They all call themselves Jews. And what does Judah mean? It means praise. It means praise. And so, rightly then, who should we praise when we think about the name? If you have the name Judah, if you call yourself a Jew, who should you praise? You should praise God. And so you should think about that name the way Leah thought about that name when she named her son Judah, Judah. She said in Genesis 29, verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name 
Judah. And then she ceased bearing. The name just means praise. You have to understand it. Say, if I rightly understand my name, it's praise the Lord. So what's the play on words at the end of verse 29? His praise is not from man, but from God. What is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying by trusting in your own signs, your own birthright, your own Jewishness, your own church memberness, you're taking the word praise and throwing it in the wrong direction. You're taking your name and you're throwing it the wrong way. Take your privileges. Take your blessings and turn the praise where it belongs. Praise the Lord. He is our Savior. He is the righteous one. And then by faith, by faith, these things are of eternal value. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, our Lord, teach us to rejoice in you. Work in us 